It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Welcome to Coronapod. In this show, we're going to bring you nature's take on the latest COVID-19 developments. And we'll be speaking to experts around the world about research during the pandemic. I really don't know how this plays out. We also don't know a ton about this, you know, virus. So there's so many open questions. I just have a really hard time making predictions because I don't know how the outbreak's going to change. Hi, Benjamin from The Nature Podcast here, coming to you direct from my basement in South London. And I'm joined by Nature's chief multimedia editor, Noah Baker. Noah, how are you doing and, and where are you right now? I am currently sitting in a crudely constructed pillow fort, which I've made out of an old dog crate and some duvets to try to get a good quality recording in rural Kent, where my family live. It's not just me and Noah. We're also joined by Amy Maxman, senior reporter here at Nature. And you're in San Francisco, right? Um, I'm actually in Berkeley, California, right across the bay from San Francisco. So, Amy, our offices in London are closed, which is why Ben and I are held up at home. What's life like in the Bay Area right now? It's a state of emergency in California. And in this area, we've had orders to, they call it shelter in place. So only go out for essential duties. Does that mean that you aren't able to leave the house to report? I don't know. I don't know about that. I'm not going to (laughs) ask. So I assume that means that you've been calling up a lot of sources as you report on this outbreak. Yes, I have. I've been talking to lots of people around here. You know, I know I know a lot of scientists between, you know, the University of California, San Francisco and Berkeley, uh, Stanford. And then I know, of course, there's this spirit of disruption here. So there's all these biotech incubators. So you can imagine that there's there's kind of a lot sort of ramping up right now. I could, it's, it's a really bizarre one to know how to report on something when you're stuck in a room. It's true. I mean, I'm usually stuck in a room, so it's not really that different. <laughs> <laughs> well, it seems like this week has been a very significant one for us here. Offices and businesses are closed, and it looks like schools are going too soon as well. Things are definitely happening apace. I was actually in Morocco at the beginning of this week. I left to go to Morocco on a holiday with all the government vice saying, that's just fine. And then we arrived and Morocco closed all of its land, sea and air borders in this very unprecedented move. And no one knew what to do about it. I've never followed an ambassador's Twitter thread as closely as I did while I was in Morocco. And he was going, honestly, I don't quite know what the situation is. This is unprecedented. We don't know how to get you home. And this is the same for people all over the place. Um, These measures are coming in and it's hitting people like blindsiding people. Luckily, I did just about get on my last flight. 
But um, it's scary times. People are scared. Well, my story is much less exciting than that. Uh, I like to bake my own bread. And uh, the supermarkets here have been stripped bare of flour. And uh, it has to be said, a great many other things as well. I wonder if it will. I wonder if it'll restock because we had the same thing here, and it was crazy. And then that initial human response, like "Holy crap, stock up on everything," passed, and now they've restocked, and they're not allowing lots of people in the store, and it's really calm and full of food. It's weird. I'm kind of tempted to think that's what's going to happen here as well. In general, once the initial panic gets over, then people will settle into what is essentially quite a dull time for a lot of people, which is staying at home and not being able to do very much. I mean, I've got a stack of books this high to read. Oh my god! I also have a child under one who's maybe not usually that up for just sitting quietly while I have an old read. <laughs> so、uh, I think it's going to be quite the time here. I reckon. I like reporting, so I'm busy. I can imagine, especially for you, you're constantly busy right now. Yeah, yeah. I feel like I'm definitely not worried about being bored. I just mainly need to stay off Twitter for my sanity. <laughs> no, Renami. It seems like testing has been an important word this week. The WHO have been leaning quite heavily on countries to pick up the slack. So、um, that's definitely true. In the U.S., testing is. Far, far, far below what it should be. I think a number of Asian countries have shown that you can test lots of people rapidly, and we had real problems, which I kind of covered a couple of weeks ago,、um, with labs not being allowed to sort of use their tests, where there being kind of a shortage of the tests from the CDC.、Um, and now that places are just finally allowed to ramp up, you know, it's taking them some. There's also a lot of regulatory hurdles to get through, so there's not nearly enough testing. You have to have like a a lot of kind of qualifications to get tested, such as be in a hospital with trouble breathing or have trouble breathing and have known contact with somebody with COVID-19. Something else that the WHO is concerned about, as well as a number of epidemiologists I've talked with, is along with testing, kind of a, a part of like the cornerstone response in all outbreaks is. You test aggressively when you think somebody is suspected,、um, and then rapidly figure out everybody they had close contact with for the past two weeks while they might have been infectious. Reach out to them, and then ask them to self quarantine and to monitor them over time. And that can mean just you know a phone call to ask you know do they have any symptoms. And the second they show symptoms, to get them tested. So that's kind of the cornerstone response that say Singapore. Truly excelled at.、Um, there's reports of them, you know, doing this kind of investigation within two hours, figuring out all of the contacts, and that's sort of what's lacking right now here. Yeah, it's interesting because that has been very much in a lot of the response in East Asia. It was also true in South Korea. There was this very sort of inclusive and and, and holistic contact tracing that happened.、Um, and it's interesting to me that because in the UK this isn't really happening to that extent either. And do you have any sort of in, idea as to why that approach hasn't been taken in other countries? It's really hard to say why. I can think you know kind of a a one thing that's definitely true is it's not. Necessarily, that there's like a shortage of tests. Tests are kind of built with very basic molecular biology equipment, so it's not so much a lack of tests as it is testing, as in all of the stuff that it takes to get a test done, which is getting the samples to the place where they're being tested and having enough people at that place to run all of these samples. So there's a lack of testing. So that's the first step, and then after that, you do have to have people who will. Talk to the person who tests positive, figure out their contacts, and then reach out to those contacts, and then even monitor them for 
14 days. And like I said, it could just be even a phone call or, you know, you can think of tech solutions. So why isn't that happening? It all just, it takes a lot of work, quite frankly. It just takes a lot of person hours. And Amy, you've been talking to folk affected by this lack of testing. Very sadly, there's one researcher, he's a geneticist in Utah, who posted on Twitter, I'm in the ICU with coronavirus. And it turned out that, you know, if you follow his thread, just about a week before he had attended a small meeting, it's an NIH meeting to go over grant proposals, where there was about 24 other geneticists. They sat in a small room for two days. And the way that all of these people who had sat in that meeting with him found out that one of their colleagues who had shared that small room had COVID was through Twitter. And that meant that for this whole past week, not only had they you know, possibly been infected, but they've been mixing with their people at home. Um, very sadly, one of the researchers who I spoke with, who had been at that meeting, she found out just after she had had dinner with her 88-year-old mother and her 84-year-old father-in-law. And both of them have underlying conditions such as diabetes. And she's, you know, she's just rightly terrified that she might have infected them and they could end up in the hospital or, or even worse. In the UK, initially there was this lack of testing. I mean, it was there, but it wasn't as prominent as it was in other countries. And now the latest sort of um, advice that's being given or the latest announcements that are coming from government advisors is that we are going to be ramping up testing. Is there any sense that the same is happening in the States now? I think a lot of researchers are getting frustrated with this idea of we're ramping up testing, we're ramping up testing. Well, it's been three weeks. And I spoke with somebody who's an infectious disease specialist and a doctor who had also worked in Guinea during the Ebola outbreak in 2015. And he was saying right now in kind of one of the wealthier parts of California, it's taking up to three days to get results from a test. What about other places in the U.S.? I read reports that every state now has, uh, has reported COVID-19. I think what's happening in the Bay Area is probably happening elsewhere. I think there's probably, you know, universities and also commercial labs that are ramping this up right now. It just sort of takes some time. I guess the the big question looking back is why weren't these steps taken, you know, back in February when it was clear that the outbreak was gigantic in China and that it was spreading? That's something that we've certainly discussed as well in Nature's Pages. And there were calls from scientists to say, no, follow the WHO guidelines sooner. Test, test, test. And it seems odd that there is this disparity between the way that countries reacted. And one can only assume that perhaps there's political drivers there, perhaps there's conflicting scientific advice. It's hard to really know what the the reason for all these different decisions has been. Yeah, I agree. And it's definitely something that I'm going to be looking into. If we take a look at what else has been going on then, at time of recording in China, they have reported no new local cases of COVID-19, which suggests there are ways to get on top of this outbreak. You know, I actually just spoke with somebody from the World Health Organization and, you know, I asked her kind of, listen, there's even projections that maybe there is more than 83,000 cases in the U.S. right now and we're just not seeing them because of a lack of testing. That was a kind of mathematical modeling, got that number. I was like, is this, you know, is it just too late for testing, contact tracing and quarantining if there's this many cases, which is sort of what some people are saying. And her immediate response was definitely not. And she pointed to China, where um, this is considered to be the number one reason why they were able to contain this outbreak. And there was one study that um, was covered in one of our recent stories at Nature that shows that without these measures, China's outbreak might be five times worse than it was. 
And I think a similar study, so this might even be the same study from Southampton in the UK, suggested that if these measures were taken one week earlier, it could have reduced the number of people infected by 66 or 67 percent, like a really, really high percentage. Yeah, exactly. So it was that same study, but that difference also comes from all of the measures. That's including the contact tracing as well as social distancing and travel bans and everything like that. And just to play devil's advocate here, we've also had a story that our reporters have been working on uh, in Nature this week, which is saying that actually some of these contact tracing measures may actually now be crossing some other lines when it comes to things like privacy. So yes, I think there was like a, the, that story from South Korea sort of pointed out uh, health authorities were alerting contacts of say, you know, you would get a text message on your phone saying that somebody that you might have been in contact with has tested positive. You might even learn what that person had done within a couple of weeks before. I think that might have been part of it. So there's questions about privacy that come up here. I think all of these measures are not fun or good. They're all costly in some ways. So if you're doing a lot of heavy contact tracing and quarantining, that's going to infringe on our privacy. On the other side, if you're weighing only on the social distancing side, if you're somebody like me who pretty much worked from home anyways, this sort of social distancing measure is almost cute. It means I'm going to like cook more and read more and that's fine. But, you know, after a week or so, this is going to be hugely detrimental to the economy. You know, closing schools is really, really very hard on parents. It takes out the workforce. So just to be clear, I, don't, I think both measures are good, but just relying on one of them is a little bit dangerous. But it seems though there's also the issue that when these measures are alleviated, and you know, of course, hopefully that's sooner rather than later, um, but when they are, everyone goes out at the same time to the cinema or to a bar, and we get the whole thing all over again. Exactly. And, you know, one one other thing that the WHO is saying about contact tracing is if you let up on that, you're sure to get spikes. If you're only pushing for social distancing, you're sure to get a spike from a case like that. And if you're not precisely trying to track those clusters and stop them from spreading further, this might go on for a very long time. So do you have a sense of what um, the exit strategy might be when you're talking about social distancing on a government you know, level? You, everyone can, can separate themselves from each other, but, but how do you end that? Is it, you know, what's the end game? Is it, is it a vaccine? Is it a treatment? You know, where, how do you stop that? I feel like at this time, I am afraid to sort of make predictions because you know, I really feel like we're in unprecedented times. And the countries we look at, at having done well at this did things that we're not doing. So if we're doing this different thing where we're going to mainly rely on kind of social distancing measures, I really don't know how this plays out. We also don't know a ton about this, you know, virus. We don't we don't know if it changes with the weather. We don't know if it, you know, if people can be reinfected more than once. We don't know how much children are carrying it or, you know, how much asymptomatic people are spreading it. So there's so many open questions. I just have a really hard time making predictions about how policies will change because I don't know how the outbreak's going to change. Well, Amy, as you say, loads of questions left to answer. And I, and I reckon there's loads left to ask as well. Now, I know you'll be doing some of that over the next seven days. So let's all meet up again then and find out what's been going on. Noah and Amy, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks. I'll see you next week. Take care. As well as getting updates on the news, for this new podcast, we also wanted to hear from people whose work relates to the COVID-19 outbreak or who have been affected by it in some way. One of these people is Rebecca Katz, a health security researcher specialising in emerging infectious diseases. 
Last November, you may have read a worldview that she wrote for Nature, discussing the potential shortcomings of the international health regulations. Now, these regulations were set up to guide the world in the event of a pandemic, and shortcomings may be problematic considering the current global situation. Nature reporter Nick Howe chatted to Rebecca earlier this week about how these regulations are holding up and what lessons we could take forward from this outbreak. He started by asking her how the WHO's lack of recourse is bearing out in the wake of the coronavirus pandemic. The WHO struggles with the fact that it is a member state organization and that for any international agreement, you know, there is a balance between the agreement one strikes and national sovereignty. Where this is playing out right now are in issues like travel restrictions and border closures. When the WHO declares a public health emergency of international concern, as they did at the end of January for, for COVID, the, it comes with a set of evidence-based recommendations from the emergency committee on things like travel and trade. And those are just that, they're recommendations. And the challenge is whether countries actually follow them. So all of the travel bans that we saw uh, initially in the response, including the United States banning any travel from, from China, uh, that was in violation of the international health regulations. Right. We're seeing more and more of these bans spreading. I mean, f- from your perspective, is this a good policy or that I'm assuming there are reasons that these were part of the regulations that the WHO put forward? I'm personally a little torn right now because I spent the last, well, what is it, 13 years uh, studying the international health regulations and being a bit of a cheerleader for the treaty while WHO is still trying to provide that evidence base and guidelines, we're very clearly seeing every country around the world kind of make their own call. And so I'm, I'm torn because I, I'm personally struggling with how effective are the international health regulations at this point? Do we all acknowledge that nobody's paying attention to this agreement or does the organization start to kind of adapt itself and think about what's the best type of evidence they can and should be providing to countries around the world. Mm. These regulations are there in order to try and protect global health. Like, What could be the potential downsides of countries going their own way and doing their own risk assessments? One of the reasons that we have an international agreement, it's not only to protect public health, but to do so under a certain set of conditions. So to, to take actions in ways that protect human rights to the extent possible, to take actions that uh, limit travel and trade interruptions as much as possible. So I think that is that is the challenge. And if um, as countries move on and do their own their own decisions, uh, you know, not to say that they're necessarily wrong from a public health perspective, it, it means that there isn't this overarching umbrella for for the norms and standards that the, the treaty provide. Hmm. And, and from your perspective, then, is there something that we can learn from this outbreak in order to try and improve these regulations? Or do we just need to get rid of them altogether? So I, uh, I no, don't get rid of them. <laughs> Absolutely don't get rid of them. I think they need to be updated. As in, I think I've been arguing about this, about this need for them to be fit for purpose. I think they're, they're critical for outlining the types of core capacities that countries need to have in order to be able to prevent, detect and respond. They are critical for having this kind of shared government's platform, but there is a tremendous amount that we can be learning from what is happening 
right now that hopefully will feed back eventually into updating and adapting the IHR in the in the modern world. And that's everything from the discussions around how we make a declaration of a public health emergency of international concern. There's been proposals from the Secretariat to say, like, well, maybe we have these different tiers, maybe we have regional before we have global. I think there's also a lot of research that needs to be done. We've proposed some research to figure out what does it actually mean to to countries, to organizations, to private industry when WHO makes one of these declarations. So if, if saying the word pandemic um, means something to, to an organization or to our insurance clause, then we need to know that and we need to be able to capture it in a way that feeds directly back to decision makers so they know that if they do or don't say certain words, that what what impact it'll have on the rest of the world. Mm, yeah, right. Because I remember when the WHO announced that it was a pandemic, I think by that point, people have been waiting for a while for such an announcement to be made. So when it finally came, it didn't seem to make much difference. Exactly. And it's and, and which gets to, you know, why why didn't they say the word? They said everything but the word. Uh, and I think it was because they feared that it would it would trigger certain actions. And and with countries sort of closing borders and maybe not paying that much attention to these international health regulations, is there a worry that international cooperation is somewhat breaking down in the wake of this virus? I think we're living in very challenging times, and um, I I I worry about that. I worry about countries nationalizing their their stockpiles and their manufacturing capacity and I think when people when people get scared they start to take actions that may or may not be consistent with with what they agreed upon during I guess a we'll call it a peacetime these are all issues that we're going to have to revisit um, but I I do worry that was Rebecca Katz director of the Center for Global Health Science and Security at Georgetown University Medical Center in the U.S. So that's it for this first edition of Coronapod. We'll be back next Friday with another episode and there'll be a regular edition of the Nature Podcast on Wednesday as usual. Don't forget to tell your friends about this show and until next time, I've been Benjamin Thompson. Thanks for listening. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.